At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we're going to dive into another section of God's Word as we continue in a series that we began last Sunday called Connect for the Gospel. Connect for the Gospel. And so we're going to continue that series today. Now, in this series so far, we've seen that we can connect for the Gospel by praying for one another as we are teammates together, that we can pray for one another together. And we saw that last Sunday by looking at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1. Today we're going to be in the second installment in that series looking at Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 to 18. And in those verses we're going to see a second way that we can connect for the gospel and that is by rejoicing together. And so we're going to look at that this morning. But before we we get to this idea of rejoicing together in the gospel, I, I want to reflect for a moment with you about some experiences I had at the University of Oklahoma. Back in 1990, I placed my faith in Christ, and soon after, I felt the Lord's leading me into full-time vocational ministry. And so I began to look for a great uh, conservative evangelical seminary to go to undergraduate college at, so I picked the University of Oklahoma. Um, No, I I knew that seminary was in my future uh, after an undergrad degree, and so I wanted to go to an undergraduate school that gave me an opportunity just to grow as a person but, but also to, to grow in some skills and how to communicate. And so I picked the University of Oklahoma, and I began to study journalism while a student there. And I learned a number of skills that have been very helpful for me in ministry throughout uh, the last 20 years here at Wildwood and 25 years or so in vocational ministry in total. But when I think about some of the skills that I learned in seminary, one skill that I never really thought I would use in ministry was how to white balance a camera. Anybody here ever white-balanced a camera before? Well, as a journalism student, they teach us how to white-balance cameras. And the reason there is a need to white-balance cameras is because light has different temperature. And so light bulbs like this and sunlight actually show up differently on cameras because a camera can't differentiate between those two different kinds of light. So light might appear more orange uh, white might, might appear more orange or more blue unless we center it correctly. So the process of white balancing is the process by which we take a white card and you hold it in front of a camera before you begin to shoot a scene, and you tell the camera through some programming that that is white. And then based on understanding that one color, then all of the rest of the colors will appear appropriately. So this process of white balancing I learned as a student at OU. Now, you might wonder what in the world I'm talking about and why I'm going on and on about this idea. Uh, It's not just to instruct you in the finer points of what our stream team is doing around the room right now, Uh, but it's actually to set an analogy that I think is helpful for us in understanding the Christian life. See, in the world in which we live, there are a lot of different colors, a lot of different hues, a lot of different temperatures, a lot of different voices that are calling out to us, trying to tell us what we should get most excited about, whether it's success or the way others think about us or whatever it might be. There are a number of things, a number of voices, a number of temperatures, a number of colors 
that are trying to influence what pure joy and excitement and enthusiasm might look like. But as a Christ follower, we need to focus on the right things, don't we? We need to celebrate the things that are the most important. We need to understand the world balanced appropriately so that we understand what God's holiness actually looks like and we understand what we should get most excited for. Well, thankfully, inside of the Scripture, we have an opportunity to have our joy balanced. We have an opportunity to center all of our thoughts on the right thing so that we might approve what is excellent as we prayed at the beginning of our service and that we might celebrate the things that are most exciting. And so we're going to look at how we might balance our joy appropriately as Christ followers today by looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Because in those few short verses, what we see is we see Paul joy balancing his life on Christ and, and how you and I might do that as well. So if you've got a Bible, take it and turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I want to read these verses for us, and then I'm going to back up and make two observations today from these verses that will help us know uh, how we might have joy in the right things in this life. Well, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes and says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Friends, in these few verses today, I want us to see two things that will help us to have our joy centered in the right spot. The first thing that I want us to see is this. We can rejoice no matter what. We can rejoice no matter what. Now, we see this by connecting what Paul says at the beginning of the verses I just read with what he says at the end, by looking at the beginning of verse 12 and the end of verse 18. So how does Paul begin? Well, he begins and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, dot, 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 See, Paul is going to begin and he's going to summarize his current experience by saying, what has happened to me? And when he says that, I think he has in mind the things that had most recently happened to him. So how do we go about finding out what had happened to Paul? If that's where he begins, how do we know what had happened to him? Well, we know that by looking at the history of the church, specifically the history that is recorded in the book of Acts. So if we flip back to Acts, we can remember several things that had happened to Paul in this moment. The first thing that we remember that had happened to him was that he had nearly been killed. Remember, Paul had, in a dramatic way, placed his faith in Christ and had his life do a 180. And he went from somebody who opposed the church to somebody who was proclaiming the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, specifically to people who were from Gentile backgrounds, non-Jewish backgrounds. 
Well, as Paul was engaging in that ministry around the Roman Empire, he felt the Lord's leading to go back to Jerusalem, the, the center of Judaism, the center of the Jewish religion. And so Paul goes back to Jerusalem, to the city where his Savior had been crucified. And he goes back to that city, and when he shows up there, Paul is nearly killed. There's a mob of people that gather around him, of Jewish people, and they, they beat him to within an inch of their life. They intended to kill him. And so part of what Paul is saying when he says, what had happened to me is he says, what happened to me when I was nearly killed back in Jerusalem? But his story didn't end there. After he was nearly killed, he was saved from being killed by that mob by the Romans. It's one of those things like, yay, the Romans showed up, if you were Paul, right? So he went from nearly being killed by his fellow countrymen to being rescued by the Romans. But when they rescued him, they assumed that he must have been up to no good. Surely for someone to create such a, a stir, he must have been breaking some law. And so they actually assumed that he was some rabble-rouser from Egypt that had showed up and had been causing some problems. And so there was a case of mistake in identity, and they arrest him. But the, the, the Jewish people, they, they didn't care why they were arresting him. They just wanted him arrested, and they came up with their own set of trumped-up charges. They, they said that Paul had brought Gentiles into the very center courts of the temple, which he had not done. So they had made up these charges, but they just wanted to take him out. Well, instead of these things being dismissed on a technicality, Paul ends up being imprisoned for most of the next six years of his life. And so he had been arrested and imprisoned. So what had happened to him? He had nearly been killed by a mob. He had been arrested and he had been imprisoned. But there are a few other things. He made an appeal to go to Rome. And so he is transported from Caesarea in the Middle East to Rome, but en route, there's a shipwreck, and he ends up stranded on this island of Malta. And while he's on the island of Malta, he's bit by a snake, and so he's experiencing all of these challenges and all of these difficulties. So he says, I want you to know what's happened to me. I was nearly killed. I was arrested. I was imprisoned on these, these bogus charges. I was involved in a shipwreck. I've been bit by a snake. And then he ended up a prisoner in Rome. That's currently what had happened to him. We see that in Acts 28, the end of, of the book of Acts, as well as here in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 13, he finds himself a prisoner in Rome. Paul had a desire to go to Rome, but he had a desire to go as a preacher, not a prisoner. And here he is, he finds himself as a, as a prisoner in Rome. So what had happened to him? Well, all of these things, but it wasn't even just that. But we see in verse 17 that he was being mistreated by fellow believers even while he was imprisoned. We see that in verse 17, and we'll talk more about this verse in a moment, but he says that there were some who thought to afflict him in his imprisonment. Can you imagine? So when Paul just said, hey, what happened to me? He is, he's going through all of this stuff, and most of it was bad. Most of it was hard. And difficult. So when Paul begins and he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me, he's in thinking of a number of things. But then look how he ends the verses that we just read. Look at how he ends verse 18. In that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Does that strike you as remarkable? That in the midst of all of those circumstances that, that Paul could rejoice that way? I mean, just to refresh your memory, 
this is what he had gone through, right? Now, this is difficult even by 2020 standards. Can we agree with that? I mean, he was having a difficult, difficult season of his life, and yet he can rejoice. Now, if that's the case, don't you want to know how he can rejoice? I mean, because we are in the midst of difficult times, and and they may be more difficult for some than for others, but there are challenges. There are people losing jobs or losing wages. There's uncertainty. There's all kinds of, of pain and strife in the world around us, and that's just what we are experiencing collectively. No doubt there are many more stories of things that you are experiencing personally. If it's possible to rejoice even in those kinds of situations, I want to know how to do it, don't you? As believers in Christ, is there anything that might center our joy together? Well, we're going to see that in a moment, but let's first remember where Paul's joy was not found, where it was not found. Because there are a number of places that we often turn to find our joy, and Paul did not find his joy in those things. For instance, he did not find his joy in his physical health and comfort. If We see that because he was able to rejoice even when he was snake-bit and shipwrecked and beaten within an inch of his life. If you can rejoice when those things are what has happened to you, then you have not centered your joy in your physical health and comfort. Not only that, but he also didn't find his joy in his treatment by the world. How do we know that? Because he was able to rejoice even when the world arrested him on bogus charges and imprisoned him for years and years. He was able to still rejoice. So obviously, his joy was not anchored in his treatment by the world. Also, his joy was not anchored even in his treatment by other Christians. How do we know that? Because there were some who sought to afflict him in his imprisonment, and yet he still was able to rejoice. And not only that, but he was able to rejoice, and he did not find his joy in the fact that his plans and his way in his time were all coming together the way that he wanted it to. And again, Paul wanted to go to Rome, but he wanted to go as a preacher and not a prisoner. I'm guessing he didn't want to go with a a three-year wait in Caesarea before he ever got there as he waited there in prison. I'm guessing he didn't expect to be shipwrecked. I'm guessing that snake bite was a surprise. And yet, he was able to have joy. How was he able to have joy? Well, I'm guessing it's because he did not anchor his joy in things happening his way in his time and according to his plan. Now, this was Paul's experience. But do you and I connect to that at all? I mean, is the things that he might have found his joy in, is it, do you see any connection or parallel with where you might want to find your joy in life? I know there is for me. I, I want to just sub out some of these words with some other words just to make it a little more personal for us. Instead of physical health and comfort, how about fun? You want to anchor your joy in fun when things are going well, when everything's falling into place? If we try to anchor our joy there, it'll be like a roller coaster, up and down and up and down because not all life is going to go our way, and there's going to be seasons that are difficult and seasons that are even more difficult than that, and Paul experienced them, and yet he still was able to rejoice. We need to anchor our joy to something other than our experience of fun or comfort. 
Also, treatment by the world, I might put the word success in there. Oftentimes, we want to anchor our, our joy to success, the promotion, the raise, the prestige that might come with those things, the, the behavior of our kids. Do they make the honor roll? Can I put that bumper sticker on the back of my car? My child is an honor student at wherever. I'm guessing that in this era, very few of us will be able to keep putting that sticker on our cars in this era of virtual learning, but it's a challenge, right? But you know, we, we can begin to think that, that our joy is found in our success and our treatment by the world. But if that's the case, then again, joy will be elusive for us. Treatment by Christians, I might sub our church experience. We'll be joyful if we can look to our church and say, our church is a nice place. It's a neat place. There's a lot of good people there. It's kind of cool, the things that are happening there. You know, if we begin to think that, then we could have challenges because sometimes our experience at church isn't neat, is it? Sometimes it's painful and hurtful. Sometimes the people that we think we're linking arms with, we end up at crossways with. We end up on sideways with our small group. I mean, how do those things happen? Well, if our joy is anchored in our experience with other, other Christians and how they relate to us, then at times we can anchor our joy to something inappropriate, like even our church experience. Lastly, our plans, our way, we might put the word control there. How many of you are joyful when you can control things? Well, you're not really, but you think you are, right? I'm a card-carrying member of the control club. I figured that out in 2020. Anybody else figured that out this year? Sometimes we think that we will have joy in our lives if, if we're in control, if we're calling the shots, if things are going our way. And yet Paul says, even though he didn't have those things, he was able to rejoice. So how is it that we rejoice? How can we have this joy? Well, friends, we have this joy by, by joy balancing our lives. If, if we're going to, to have that kind of joy, we need to, to joy balance our lives. We need to all look at a card on something that we know that we can rejoice in and remember that so that we are standardized across the many temperatures and the many hues and the many colors of our world. Inside of all of the emphasis that is around us, how do we understand where true joy is found? Friends, we need to joy balance the lens of our lives. And we see Paul provide for us that balancing as we look at what he says in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. So where does Paul find this joy? Well, let's go back to verse 12. In verse 12, I read the first part earlier. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, I put dot, dot, dot. But let's see what Paul said. He didn't put dots. He kept going, right? What has happened to me, he says, has really served to advance the gospel. What was it that was causing Paul to rejoice, even in the midst of the difficulties around him? It was the fact that he knew that the gospel was advancing. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The good news that God loves us and that even though we are sinful people, that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into this world and lived a perfect life to show us what God was life like, and then he offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross to take the penalty that our sins deserve, that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. And we get to follow that God who loves us in Christ. What Paul is saying here is he says, the things that I am experiencing are causing an advance in that message. They're causing more people to believe that message. People who once did not believe in Jesus were now believing in Jesus, and the microphone that God was using to amplify that message were the very experiences that Paul was going through. When he talks about an advance, that word advance is a word that is used in ancient writings of a military campaign where there would be people who would go before an army. If they came to a body of water, they might... uh, build a bridge across that water so that the army could could cross into new territory. And Paul saw the events of his life and his experience as creating a bridge over which the gospel was advancing and people were coming to faith. And in that, he did rejoice. The reason why that is something to, to standardize our joy in is because that's where joy is found in heaven, right? Jesus tells three stories in Luke chapter 15 about someone who lost a coin, a sheep, and a son. And in all instances, when they lost the coin, the sheep, or the son, when, when those things were found, there was, there was celebrating. And Jesus tells that story to say, just as you celebrate in this world when you find something that you lost, can you imagine the celebration in heaven when one who was created in the image of God is found in Christ. There is great celebration when the gospel advances. And if that's what's being celebrated in heaven, Paul says, I'm going to balance my joy on that notion, and I'm going to celebrate when the gospel is advancing through my circumstances, even if it means my life is difficult. Paul says, I will go through hell on this earth if it means that someone will get to heaven as a result. And so he has his joy balanced in that way. Now, here's the thing. Was was Paul just saying that as just a way to make himself feel better, or was there any real evidence that the gospel was advancing in that moment? The answer to that, of course, is there was real evidence. And he gives us two different streams of that evidence inside of the verses that we read earlier. The first evidence that the gospel is advancing is that soldiers were coming to Christ. Now, in order to set the stage for this, let's, let's connect Acts with Philippians so that we see what's happening. See, in Acts chapter 28, verse 16, when Paul shows up in Rome as a prisoner, he wasn't taken to a dungeon, but he actually was taken to a place of residence that he was able to rent. That's the way the Romans rolled. You're in prison, but we're going to let you pay for it. So Paul goes and he's imprisoned in this room, and, and he's in there by himself with the exception of one additional guard. There was a guard, a soldier, who was with him. Now, by looking at other ancient documents, we would understand that those soldiers worked in like six-hour shifts. So for every 24-hour period of time, Paul was literally chained in a room to a Roman imperial guard. And it was in rotation all day, every day, for a period of several years. Now, as Paul was chained there, what do you think he was talking about? Paul was not talking about complaining about his chains. Man, these things stink. My lawyer, he, he should have given a better defense. Why did I get up here and, you know, he wasn't doing that. I'm guessing he was talking about Jesus. Now, what a contrast that must have been to, to the other people 
that those Romans might have been chained to. Can you imagine they're getting their assignment for the day? Okay, you know, um, Alexander, you're going to be chained to Bob over here today. And he's like, oh, not Bob. You know, Bob, all he does is complain. He tries to throw stuff at me. He tried to break out three times last week. I don't want to be chained. But you got Bob today. You go chained to Bob. That's, that's it. But, but imagine the person that's like, you get chained to Paul. You walk in and he's like, hey, how are you? Let's get this chain thing going. Now let me tell you about Jesus. Where did we leave off last time? Empty tomb. That's right, that's right, empty tomb. So then, you know, and he goes on and he continues to talk about Christ. I mean, you can imagine the scenario. Well, as he is talking about Jesus, and the reason why we know he's talking about Jesus is look at what Paul said in verse 13. He says, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's talking about Jesus and it's the talk of the guard. They're coming in four a day. But there's a thousand imperial guard in Rome at that time. But the news of what had happened to Paul and ultimately who Paul was following, that message was going out again and again and again and again. Not only that, but his proclamation of the gospel was effective. Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul concludes this letter and he says, All the saints greet you. Saints is his word for believers. All the believers in Jesus Christ greet you, Philippians, especially those of whose house? Of Caesar's household, including members of the imperial guard, no doubt, but even others. So when Paul is imprisoned, he's celebrating because the gospel is advancing. The gospel is is advancing. Paul would say of a, another imprisonment in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I'm suffering, I'm bound with chains as a criminal. He says, but the Word of God is not bound. You can't stop the gospel. It is continuing to advance, and therefore, Paul says, you can chain me up, but I'm going to rejoice because the gospel is going out again and again and again. Robert Leitner of this says, in an effort to silence the truth, the authorities had incarcerated the one who spoke it, but their plan did not work. Friends, how did Paul joy balance his life? He joy balanced his life by remembering the gospel was being advanced, and the gospel was being advanced as soldiers were coming to faith in Christ, and so he rejoiced. But there's other evidence that the gospel was advancing. What was that other evidence? Well, that was the evidence that bold Christian witness was happening among the believers in Rome. Not only were there people coming and placing their faith in Christ, but also there was encouragement that was happening to the church in Rome. Now, this might be confusing to us a little bit because we might think that nobody believed in Jesus in Rome before Paul showed up. But we know that's not true because Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. It's our epistle to the Romans in our Bible. And in that letter, he talks to the believers who are in Rome. So there already was a church there, but apparently the church that was in Rome that existed before Paul ever made it to that city, that the believers in that church were timid to proclaim the gospel. And they were probably timid because of fear of Caesar and just the difficulties that might come as they proclaimed the truth. Well, Paul shows up and he's arrested and he's imprisoned, but even in his imprisonment, he's proclaiming the gospel and the church and the gospel is growing. And so because of that, the believers in Rome are encouraged to continue to be more bold in their own faith as well. 
verse 14, and, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's encouraged the gospel being, is, is being advanced because people are proclaiming the truth. But Paul acknowledges even that in those who are proclaiming the truth, that there are some who are doing so from pure motives and some who are doing so from impure motives. This most here of the brothers who are confident and are much more bold, some of them, he says, are preaching Christ from goodwill and out of love. In other words, there are some who are emboldened to preach the gospel and they're doing so with a loving attitude towards those they are sharing. They're purely just desiring to see people come to faith in Christ out of compassion and love for them. But Paul continues and he says that there are others in that many who are more bold, who have different motivations. He says, some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry with selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict, afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, what in the world is going on there? In what way were there people who were ministering in the name of Jesus out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition? And how in the world would any of that afflict Paul and his imprisonment? I mean, just think for a moment. If I really get upset with Ryan, and he and I have a disagreement, and I want to really just stick it to him, what if I said, I'm really going to stick it to Ryan. I'm going to go share Jesus with his neighbor. <laughs> That'll show him. That seems weird, right? Like, what, what, are, what is he talking about? Well, I think that we don't know for sure. But to my best understanding, this is what was happening. With Paul imprisoned, there were people who wanted to step into that apostolic void and build not just followers of Jesus, but ultimately followers of them. They wanted to grow their own church or grow their own congregation or to grow their own following. And, and Paul writes here and he says, I know that in my imprisonment that there are some who are out there and they're preaching the right message but they're just trying to build people who are connected to them, and they're trying to even take people away from me in order to build their own tribe. And, and Paul says, that is personally hurtful to me, as how that's playing out. But what does he say in verse 18? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, he says, I will rejoice. What an amazing statement, right? Paul says, I know that as I have encouraged the church and they have become more bold in their preaching, some of them are preaching out of pure motives and some are preaching about out of impure motives. But Paul says, I'm not going to make this about whose tribe is bigger, whose congregation is larger, whose personal name is most honored among ministers. But Paul says, I'm going to just drop the anchor here and say, that if the gospel is going out and people are believing it and embracing it, in that I'm going to rejoice. Now, friends, Paul rejoiced by joy balancing his life on the advancement of the gospel. Will we do the same thing? And if we are to joy balance our own lens, what are some of the things that you and I might need to do? Well, 
Warren Wiersbe gives us a clue. He says, the secret is this. When you have the single mind, you look on your circumstances as God-given opportunities for the furtherance of the gospel, and you rejoice at what, what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God did not do. So how do we have this single mind for the advancement of the gospel collectively as a church family and individually as followers of Christ? Well, a few things. The first thing that I think we can do is this. We can determine that the gospel is more important than blank. That the advancement of the gospel and people coming to faith in Christ is more important than blank. And I want you, I left it blank on purpose because I want you to put what you need to put in there. Go ahead and make the decision now. That determining that the gospel and the advancement of the gospel and people coming to faith is more important than my political party or my candidate winning. To determine that the gospel is more important than my physical health and comfort. To determine that the gospel is more important than that raise at work. Or the gospel is more important than my reputation on the block in which I live. Friends, have we made the decision that the advancement of the gospel is important? Are we focused on that? Is that something we're seeking to rejoice in, the expansion of the gospel in our city? Have we made that decision? Have we determined those things? Second thing that I think we could do at this moment is we can invest our life in the mission. Again, Paul didn't just talk this talk, but he walked this walk. He actually invited people to follow Christ. I'm so thankful that Paul didn't sit there in that room, chained to that Roman guard, and think, when I get out of here, I'm really going to have a ministry. And I'm so thankful that so many of us are not going, when 2020 is over, we're really going to be involved and engaged and share the gospel, and have an urgency. Friends, we, we have opportunities right now. Are we going to personally invest and get involved in helping others to follow Christ? Are we going to have those conversations with those around us? Are we going to take advantage of the situations that God has placed in front of us in this time and in this season to proclaim the gospel? Lastly, consecrate your chains. It's fascinating to me that Paul doesn't complain about his chains here. He doesn't talk about how uncomfortable they are. Instead, he kind of consecrates them. He says, these these chains the Lord can use as a microphone to proclaim the gospel into an area where it would not go otherwise. And friends, right now in your life, there are circumstances that you don't like, that you want to complain about, but they create an opportunity and an avenue for the gospel to ring forth. How might the gospel ring forth as we consecrate our chains in this day, in this moment, in this time? Friends, together as a church family, we need to joy balance our lens. And in that, we can be together around and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, part of being together for the gospel this way is that we celebrate and we rejoice in the things that are most important. And one of the times and ways we do that as a church family is through baptism. And so I just want to encourage all of us and remind us that on November the 22nd will be our next baptism service. And here on this stage, we will be celebrating new life in Christ. We're going to be joy balancing our lives in the midst of this year on people placing and coming to faith in Jesus. And so, you know, as we think about heading towards this day, I just encourage you, if you have trusted Christ and you have not been baptized with water since trusting in Christ, know that we would love to celebrate with you 
that day. And so just know that you can let us know about your interest in baptism by going to wildwoodchurch.org slash baptism and let us know. And, and that's, that's something that you can do. Uh, and then we have a baptism class that's coming up in about a month. We'll follow up with all those details. But we would love to just celebrate with you new life in Christ as a church family on November 22nd. Second thing I want to share just by way of encouragement is that we can also connect and get involved in proclaiming and advancing the gospel in our city. And one week from tonight on September 27th from 5 to 8 p.m. out in our parking lot, uh, we're going to have a picnic. It's going to be a blast. Food trucks are here, live music, games for the kids, but also an opportunity for us to connect with a number of our local missionary partners where we can be a part of advancing the gospel here in our city. And so we would love to have you come and spend that night with us next week as we have an opportunity to advance the gospel together as a church family. Friends and church, may we rejoice in the things that God rejoices in. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word today and look at it. I thank you that you are at work even in the midst of difficult times to bring men and women to yourself. And I pray that you would help us to be your vessels to take that message to advance the gospel and that joy would spread in our hearts as we see you grow your church in Christ. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.